Welcome to Peak Curiosity. Abigail here. My guest today is Barry Cooper, one half of the Cooper and Carrie Have Words podcast, as well as host of the Simply Put and Lutheran Real Time podcasts. He is one of the creators of Christianity Explored, a series that has to date been used in 100 countries and translated into 50 whole languages. I've listened to his podcast for years at this point, so it was a real honor to actually get to chat. You know when you're listening to a podcast, you're like, ooh, I have something that would add to this conversation, but you just can't. Well, I actually could this time. We talked about Jordan Peterson, because obviously, um, Calvinism, or according to Barry, Biblicism. He actually may have converted me on this one. You know, Calvinism is really starting to make more sense by the day. And we spent a good deal of time talking about how grief affects a lot more pieces of you and your family than is obvious all around. This was a really fun conversation to have, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Abigail, hello. Hi, how's it going? It's good, how are you? Good. I always talk before the people can hear me, so I've decided to just wait patiently. <laughs> That's a very good idea. Yeah. I just, I'm, uh, I always, I think it's obligatory to spend the first five minutes of any new Zoom call going, can you hear me? Are you, are you seeing me all right? So that's all right. That's all part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah. I'm just trying to get my light on here. I've got one of those awful selfie ring lights. Oh no. Which... <sighs> Did you, there we uh, go. It's, a bit it's a good thing you had a face mask on when you had to go buy it so no one could see you. <laughs> I know, right? That's that's a real slap in the face no. of selfie culture, isn't it? Having to wear a mask. <laughs> Although I don't know, I suppose it's become quite performative, hasn't it? It this definitely sort of... has. But this is this is this is fun. How did you come up with the name Peak Curiosity? Well, I was thinking that the only common thread I could have in a podcast because I couldn't find a niche, but I just mm -hmm. really wanted to do a podcast, and so I thought I suppose I'm just curious about everything. And then I right. was thinking of the phrase, you know, that really piqued my curiosity, but it's spelled ah. really strangely and no one really knows how to spell that word this day and age. So the peak, okay. like, I don't know, I was envisioning for my logo, it didn't work out, but I was envisioning a graph as in like my curiosity is always going up, which it is. Ah. Oh, so, that's, wow. You've really put some thought into this. Yeah, I think most people just slap any old icon up there. That's good. That's good work. There are yeah. levels. There are layers that you're working with. That's very exciting. Definitely. So I'm wondering if you're aware of this. According to Google, if I Google your name, right, you are a very, very large man. You have a very large square jawline, dyed blonde hair. You are an American drug reform activist and That's filmmaker the from the mm. Libertarian Party. Yeah. yeah. That takes up quite a lot of my time, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. Which drugs are you uh, selling in particular? <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely true, Abigail. I um, uh, I get on a semi-regular basis emails from people who stumble across my website and assume that I am that guy. Really? So what that means is I get lots of emails which basically ask my advice on Hey, I've, you know, I just got busted by the cops and I've got this amount of drugs. What, what do you recommend I do? Which puts me in an awkward position because I do feel for them. I mean, you know, they're obviously in a real spot, but there's not much I can offer them apart from Trinitarian theology. So I usually kind of answer in kind and say, listen, I'm afraid you have got the wrong guy, 
but I do believe in providence and that this this communication was not accidental. So let me recommend. Here's a little book I've I've written. Um, I, I hope it, it make, you know I hope it gives you joy. Do get back in touch if you have any questions. You've got to feel for these people. Yeah. I've never been busted for drugs myself, at least not yet. But uh, it must be quite a spot to be in, mustn't it? Yeah, I can only imagine. <laughs> she says guardedly. Yeah, <laughs> I would not know about that. No. Okay, good. Well, well, you are in Florida. I'm surprised. Isn't there lots mm-hmm. of drugging going on down there? I hear. There's quite a bit of drugging going yeah. on, I think. I used to watch Miami Vice when I was a British kid in the in the early '80s, and that was that was my first impression of Florida. I thought everybody walked around with very cool, slick back hair, pastel uh, clothes, and you know, backed by the sound of Jan Hammer synthesizer music, um, and it all seemed impossibly cool and glamorous. In fact, there's a few very embarrassing photos of me that still exist when I was about. 11 or 12 trying to dress like Sonny Crockett from Miami Vice and not pulling it off <laughs> oh man that's so awkward. funny yeah, um very... do you do video for your your podcast I do, or not. It work? I do not okay that's probably just as well yeah early in the morning it's early in the morning I've had to do enough like get up in the middle of the night for someone in the UK that I just oh, don't no. want to think about it that's no good. When do you and James record? Yeah, we usually record uh, at about midday. So for him, that's around about five o'clock. And for me, it's midday. Yeah. yeah. So that seems to work reasonably well. Although we've both got kids. And so that further complicates matters. And usually it seems to me one of us is on much better form than the other. And I think <laughs> it's usually James. So I'm just going to blame the, the time zones for that sort of thing. That's fair. Yeah. Have you, how many episodes have you recorded and scrapped? Oh, that's a really good question. We have only scrapped two, uh, to my knowledge. There may have been one or two which we've decided to sort of put out as shorter uh, Patreon-only things. Mm. But there was one we did on the subject of panic, which we, we make available to our, as you know, to our, to our patrons and the reason we scrapped that one was because as i remember it we'd already done something on the coronavirus and it just felt like we were sort of laying it on a bit thick i think and we don't like to although you'll probably laugh at this because we obviously do have some very distinctive hobby horses that we tend to return to but we we try and keep it reasonably varied we don't want to alienate people who for some odd reason, don't like talking about predestination the entire time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, okay, maybe we should mix it up a little bit. And that is one of the reasons I think we didn't do the panic one. And the other one we just, actually, strictly speaking, was was not one we decided to hold back. It was one we specifically recorded for patrons, which is to do with our favorite Bible verses. Um, Mm. So yeah, I don't think there's been any that we've really been unable to release. That's good. What about you? Have you recorded anywhere you thought, oh no, this I can't do this. This is really controversial or no. something somebody has a breakdown live on air or whatever. <laughs> I wish I had something that juicy, but right, I really right. don't. There was one that just didn't go very well and I thought, should I release this? Like there was nothing bad, it just didn't go amazing. Yeah. And I thought, well, 
I don't know. They say consistency, but they say don't waste your get your listeners' time. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't yeah. have another episode to put out, so I shortened it up the best I could and just went with it. Yeah, that's that's pretty wise. One of the best bits of advice we got was from uh, Brent Hansen, one of your former guests, um, who said, "Yeah, whatever you do, don't waggle on the tee. So get straight into it. Don't waste people's time." You know, he said, I can't stand podcasts where you've got to wade through tons of opening music. And then there's like an advert. And then there's the two guys fronting it, just kind of doing a load of in jokes for ages. That's, And I think that's good, good advice. That is boring, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. It goes both ways. I listen. I tend to listen to unedited podcasts completely, like a lot of Joe oh, Rogan and things like that. So I like yeah. the banter. But that also means that I'm really invested in who the characters are already. If I'm a first time okay. listener, it can be really off putting. So it goes yeah. both ways. How many podcasts do you, do you regularly lis listen to? Do you think? I listen to a lot. So my day job is painting houses, which I was a really oh. annoying Patreon listener that was like, can you please make the Patreon things <laughs> audio? Because I just can't list watch the video. Uh, so got it, got um, I have between eight and 10 hour, 10 work hours where my ears are open for right. duty. So I listen wow. to probably a Joe Rogan episode every day. So that takes up three hours. I listen to a lot of Jordan Peterson, a few Dude. episodes a week. So those are the two biggest. He's fascinating right now isn't he coming off the back of this serious illness and yes he does seem to be very changed in lots of ways doesn't he he's 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 broken um but he's so he's still got that incredible fierce transparency mm -hmm. about him which means that sometimes it feels quite painful watching doesn't it because you see yes. him getting really choked up a lot yeah and you can see that there's a lot of deep kind of wounds that have been caused but you've got to you've got to keep praying and hoping don't you that it's it's that the lord is is going after him um it's it's hard to know exactly what's going on but yeah from a distance it seems like the holy spirit might be doing a number on him but yeah i agree i used to say that he was like 80 percent a christian and right. now i say he's 98 percent. he is just <laughs> right. right on the edge yeah he really is yeah. he really is there was that one recently where he was being interviewed by, is it Jonathan Pajot? Um, mm -hmm. And he was talking about Jungian synchronicity, I think. And then talking about how he'd seen in his life the way that these, it's, it's as if the author is breaking into the story that he couldn't account for it. And, and Pajot said something like, well, what, what would it look like to be Jordan Peterson if that were true? And it just, he was just overwhelmed. You know, mm -hmm. he sort of started to cry. It's like, I just can't, I mean, what would it mean if that were true? If that, you know, you could see, it was just really beginning to see the, work out the the implications for him if it really were true. But yeah, it, he, he's a, an amazing character, isn't he? Yeah. I have been thinking about one thing that he said in that one podcast in particular, where he said, when I look at the Bible, you're asking me to believe one of two impossible things. Either the story is true or humans made it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Two impossible things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good way of putting it. 
So how did you become a believer? Well, I grew up in a Christian home, as the story often goes. And I mean, I was a really good kid. I liked it when adults told me nice things. So I followed the rules really well. I was the best Bible memorizer in my church, you know, that lofty award. So <laughs> and what kind of church was it? Calvary Chapel. Okay, cool. Yeah. 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 And so I, around teenage, teenage years, I tried to take it seriously, but I was really confused about like, how much does it have to do with me? How much does it have to do with God and mm. getting way too black and white about things. And then after I got married, like I was trying to hold that tension together. And then after I got married, I was just like, I cannot do this anymore. So Hmm. I was really tired of what I had experienced Christianity and church to be like up to that point and kind of said, forget it. I mean, I'm not saying forget it to everything. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I need to take a break. Hmm. And so I spent a year grudgingly going to church with my husband and um, reading a lot of Jordan Peterson. (laughs) And just after a couple years of forgetting some of the things that I'd been taught that weren't correct, Mm. I was able to kind of get back on my feet. So Interesting. Yeah. And are you still attending Calvary Chapel churches, or are you doing something else? I'm not. I'm going to a really cute church that's a 10-minute walk from my house. and that's the way to do it. It's great, and it is like a Bible study. There's... On a packed day, I don't know, 60 people that go. So it's mm-hmm. really, really small, and right, I really right. like it. I, it's amazing what a difference geography makes, isn't it? I, when I was living in London, I used to drive 45 minutes to get to church. And, I mean, in terms of trying to do the one and others of the New Testament, you're pretty <laughs> much sunk. Yeah. And you're forced to reinterpret those passages in a very vague, nebulous way. Love one another. Okay, what that must mean is basically just love other Christians whenever I bump into them, you know. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize, I think, I mean, I didn't realize until probably 2011 when I did an internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church where pretty much all the staff lived within a couple of blocks of the church. All the interns lived in a in a converted bed and breakfast immediately across the road. Most of the congregation members, it seemed to me, were within easy uh, striking distance of the place and just the feel of the place as you walked in was so different because people really knew each other and were involved in other in, in each other's lives and um that kind of ruined me for for anything else and so we we recently you know we moved house at the beginning of the lockdown last year and admittedly a lot of that was to do with making my commute easier but it also we wouldn't have done it if it had meant moving further away from church mm-hmm. you, you just that is so important isn't it and it's so overlooked the idea of just being physically proximate to your church and the people who go there um it's massive absolutely massive yeah definitely and we did not have a long drive before we only had a 15 to 20 minute drive depending on mm. the traffic which is short and we live in a small area, so everything Sure, for takes... America. I mean, that's a yeah. that's a hop, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. But still, when it, it's just right there, it's so easy. And now yeah. the men's Bible study comes and meets at our house, which is really good because they didn't mm-hmm. really have a good place before. So, yeah, yeah lots of good things. Yeah, makes a massive difference. 
makes a massive difference. And what about your folks? Are your, are your folks still still around? Yeah, they live about a 14-minute walk away. Okay, yeah. <laughs> We're all very close, yeah. That's good. And do you have any kids yet? I do not. not? No. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I say that is just it just made me think of having a grandma nearby here because, of course, granddad is 4,000 miles away in, in, in London. And that has just been such a godsend because as much as you love your kids, there are times where it's just like, oh, man, I just need some just an hour where, you know, you can think about something else and take a breather. So she's, yeah. she's amazing. Yeah, sure. I think about that a lot. And I don't think humans have lived in a society that we have now where we all have our own houses and own spaces. And totally. we're expected to stay within those spaces for 90 percent of our time where, yeah. I mean, if you lived in a village, all the moms would go get water together and they would all take their kids together. And your grandma would be right there to watch the kids for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. The implications of technology again and again, you know, the invention of the Model T uh, uh, Ford, you know, the combustion engine, suddenly the fact that we we can commute half an hour, go be in a totally different place to, to work um, has just really profoundly affected us in ways we never saw coming. It's like that with every big technological leap, isn't it? I mean, you look at now... Uh, social media or, or the iPhone, for example, and you see, you go back and you see how mental health has kind of plummeted with the launch of, you know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. And you thought, well, at the time, nobody saw that coming. It just seemed like, hey, this is a great way to connect with people. You know what, you know, share your photos with granddad or whatever. And now suddenly it's like, oh, oh, it does that. Um, so I, I mean, I feel for people who work in those industries because it must be like, you're constantly handling this kind of magic and you don't know what it does. It's like this, you know, enigmatic, like the like the box in Hellraiser. I probably shouldn't reference that film because it's not a film you should probably watch if you're a Christian believer because it's so <laughs> horrific. But that, I, that gothic idea of being entrusted with some sort of artefact and you don't know quite what it does and you're trying to solve the puzzle and then it does all these terrible things that... Pandora's box is essentially what I'm talking about. Yeah. But anyway... Yeah, it's so true. But then we're we've gotten so attached to it, and so many businesses rely on it that mm -hmm. it's kind of hard yeah. to just get rid of it. I tried. I for like six months, I didn't use my social media. I deleted it from my phone, and I liked that I didn't have it. But then one day, I thought, oh, I'll just get on there and post that I put a new podcast out. And mm -hmm. I got three times the listens that day than I had been getting. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, this is just when I thought I was out. Yeah. Pull me yeah. back in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's But that's one of the reasons why I, sh I deleted my Facebook account was precisely because it was so difficult to do so. The, the fact that it was so difficult made me profoundly disturbed about it. Mm -hmm. The fact that it had clearly been designed to keep its hooks in you. And even when you try and cancel, as just, just about any online service now, you know, you get those kind of awful screens where it says, are you sure? Do you really want to do this? Because you're going to lose touch with all of these people. And then it shows all their faces looking winsomely at you. I mean, it's just, it's so cynical, really. It is. I remember when I was a teenager, I really wanted one because, you know, I'm the age that it was starting to get cool when I was mm. mid-teens. And my mom didn't want me to get one for obvious reasons, but then she finally relented 
And then a couple of years later, I was like, you know, this is really not doing for me what I thought it was. I'm going right. to delete it. And then she was like, what? Why would you do such a thing? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's that's the thing, isn't it? When person, your friends and your family yeah. say to you, I had the same thing when I when I deleted WhatsApp off my phone recently. And there's one guy who's probably my oldest, my oldest friend in all the world. He pretty much uses that all the time. And it was like I was saying to him, I don't want to be your friend anymore. You know, it was just yeah. so sort of devastating. I said, no, it's fine. We can use Signal or something else. But I just, you know, but it it does. It insinuates itself into your, your web of personal um, interactions, your friends and your family, which again felt like a reason why I really wanted to get rid of it. Um, I just didn't want Mark Zuckerberg sort of managing all of that. Um, and I get it. I mean, it's all it's the thing about, you you know, if there's if the product is free, then you're the product and all of that Definitely. kind of stuff. Um, and it's tons of reasons, but I guess everybody's pretty entrenched in their views right now. I'm using Discord a lot more these days, which feels a bit less intrusive. Um, yeah. If only it wasn't so hard to use. It's so clunky. It's not terribly user-friendly. You're right. Yeah. That's the thing that Facebook cracked and is so brilliant at. Mm-hmm. Um, they just make it easy, don't they? Um, but yeah. Yeah. So you were quite an early, are you quite an early adopter of technology then generally and sort of social media stuff and internet technologies? Yeah, I think so. Although I was a quick adopter and then for the most part, a quick deleter. Uh, I quickly (laughs) (laughs) deleted Snapchat and I was like, this is a very dangerous thing. I don't know what my friends think they're doing on this, but I'm not (laughs) in. I, there's no way that these photos are gone after 10 seconds. And so, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, so there there is that thing of all right, you are asking me to give you the unseen creator of this technology a level of trust which I'm not sure I even give give to God himself if I'm honest. I should, <laughs> so but true. I don't. And I I yeah, I'm not sure I'm down with that. And also that thing of just feeling like you're like like thinly spread butter over hot toast you just feel like if you've got if you've got about five different apps on your phone you know you've got slack twist twitter instagram whatever plus email um, messages whatsapp you just feel like i my soul is being is being sort of steamrolled into this pancake thin mm-hmm. thing i've just got so little of it now to go around because i'm being bombarded by notifications from all sides i think some people maybe are better at multitasking than others and don't feel stressed out by it but i really do i i think in a former life i might have been a member of the amish community or something <laughs> that i just want to sort of i just want everything to be really simple one line of i mean i get stressed just dealing with phone calls i mean sure. it's just do you know what I mean? Like I just, I, I sort of only want people to be able to access me in, in one way, in one way alone. Otherwise I feel like I'm spinning plates. Yeah, that's true. When lately I've been really working on maintaining some relationships that just kind of drift apart and social media is just a facade of man- maintaining that. So mm. I will reach out and ask for people's phone numbers and then mm-hmm. I will text them every few weeks and so I prefer to text or talk on the phone. And mm. that's how I've stayed in contact. And it's been really great keeping up with these people because I have friends who've moved to the city and they do not think anything I think anymore, even though we grew up so similarly. And so I'll text them and say, hey, just 
fill me in on how you're feeling about what just happened in the past two days. I really need to know how someone in your perspective and in your geographical location is viewing this. I found great success in just texting. That's interesting because it just feels more personal. I, mm -hmm. I totally get that. It's it's interesting. We did for a while. We when people started following us on Instagram, this is the Cooper and Carey account. We would, I I would send them like a little uh, direct message, like a little video saying, "Hey, you know," and obviously using their names and stuff. And it was amazing how it, it was quite polarizing actually. There were some people who were like, wow, this is fantastic. You know, I've not had this. And you sort of sensed that they were they were totally in then. It was like, okay, well, this is cool. This is a fun community. On the other hand, there were definitely a few people who were like, well, that was a bit weird. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't really know you at all. Why are you doing this? So I guess that can that could go either way. But where you've already got a relationship with someone, yeah, I absolutely agree. You've, you've got to do everything you can to make it, to get rid of the depersonalization effects of, of the internet what about your husband is he is he big into um is he more into communication less into communication much much less he has not had a social media <laughs> <Typical> man, eh? <laughs> for about five years and uh he does he's not great at keeping up with friendships um he needs people to hmm. contact him is he would you say he's more introverted or more extroverted generally <laughs> he's much much more introverted He's not even a crazy uh -huh. introvert, but I am a 98th percentile extrovert. So it doesn't take much for oh. someone to be much less extroverted than I am. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's all relative. Yeah. Did you ever do one of those Myers-Briggs tests or anything like that? Yeah, I did. Um, Can you remember what your letters are? I have to look <laughs> it up. You probably got them tattooed on your forearm. <laughs> <laughs> No, I didn't want to be because it's quite that important that. to you. Um, it's whatever one Obama and Oprah have, which made me feel really good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's yeah. one of the things they do, isn't it? Once they give you the letters, they go, "Hey, you share your letters with," and then some a list of really impressive people. Sure, feel good about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got Jesus, by the way. Can I you just did. say? <laughs> yeah, on the website I was using. Oh man, that's amazing. It was amazing. fantastic. They're like. Yeah, you're really, you're quite like Jesus, aren't you? And I say, yeah, good, but finally someone's recognized it. Sure. You know? Did you put that on your resume for every ministerial thing sure. you applied for? That's right. It's on my business card now. It's a funny thing. I, I did mine when I was at uh, seminary 10 years ago, and then I did it again quite recently at my place of work. And I must admit, I'm usually, as you might have sensed, I'm, bit, I'm quite cynical well surprise surprise british man is cynical about something but i'm quite i'm quite cynical about these sort of tests mm -hmm. i've never done a neogram even though christians seem to be getting very excited about that and 10 years ago they told me i was an infj mm. and i said well what does that mean and they said oh it basically means you're a total weirdo because <laughs> <laughs> because especially if you're a dude if you're a man who's an infj it puts you in this I think it's like 0.6% of the population. It's like a really small segment. Wow. Which basically, what was nice about hearing that was that it gave me, it gave me a rationale for the feeling I'd had for a long time, which is I really, I, I felt like a struggle connecting sometimes with people. I feel like people are on, a, are on a totally different page to me, tuned into a totally different radio station and stuff that I get really excited and animated about other people. I can see them glazing over 
bit like mm-hmm. now. <laughs> I'm kidding. But they're, or they're just like, you know, I'm not tracking with you at all here. And then they say, oh, it's INFJ. And I'm like, oh, fine. It's like a, some sort of medical diagnosis. I feel better now because now I know I've got a problem, which I'm sure is not what they're meant to do. Anyway, 10 years later, I did the same thing. I did it last year, in fact. And I was sort of secretly hoping I might have moved a bit on the spectrum, but I haven't. I'm still solidly INFJ. Huh, that's awesome. <laughs> so, what it, so after all that, what, do you, what are your letters? Do you remember? It's ENFJ. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. See, I think that's what I'd like to be. I'd like to be what I am at present, but a bit more extrovert. Yeah. That must yeah. be quite fun. <laughs> I would like to think so. <laughs> Is there any of those letters that you would change? That you would go, oh, yeah, I kind of wish I was more, less intuitive and more, what is it, judgy? I forget what the J, that the, um, it's N or S, isn't it? Sensing or intuitive? I don't know. I don't know. I am not very familiar with the Myers-Briggs. The letter thing always has really confused me. Like, why can't you just say what the thing is instead of giving me these abbreviations that don't make sense? So. Right. I mean, the biggest problem with me I would like to be changed is that I am a little bit more status-minded than I would like to be. Interesting. Yeah. Can you give an example of what you mean? I'm going to really, this is a, do you mean, do you mean, when you say status, do you mean um, sort of being aware of your position in society or do you mean like comparing yourself to other people? I mean, comparing and I like money. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, I like to have. You know, you're in the wrong line of business, don't you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm quickly hemorrhaging the money but (laughs) right um yes mostly i think that i really really try to fight it and i don't judge other people but i do strongly judge myself on how Mm. i uh handle money and um how our house is presented and things Mm. like that i would like it to not be do you have a budget do you have got a strict budget or are you one of those people who's just like budget schmudget (laughs) no we have a pretty strict budget yeah yeah that was a that was a big learning curve for me after I got married. My wife is very on it where it comes to the sort of those sorts of things. And as I'd been a bachelor for a long time, got married pretty late in life. And so I had a lot of very bad habits to un, unpick. Um, that was one of them. Just like, oh, yeah. yeah, it's fine. I can just spend whatever. As long as I'm not being really stupid. With my, I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm not buying a yacht in the south of France. Of course I can spend some money. It's fine. Sure. And, and mostly that was true because I was doing a reasonably steady job and, you know, accommodation was sort of sorted out. And, but then you get married and you think, oh, right, I've got to be a responsible human being. And money is where it really hits the road, isn't it, actually? Money is so... Surprise, surprise, because Jesus talks about it so much. You know, it's, it really is central to so many things. How old were you when you got married? I think I was nearly 45. Gotcha. Um, and that is one of those, I think my great gift to the wider world is basically going through my life making catastrophic mistakes so that I can then say to other people, yeah, don't do that. Doesn't It's not good. Don't do that. Interesting. I'm like one of those robotic dogs that they send out into landmines. <laughs> sort of like you know fields full of landmines and i'll just mm-hmm. go and trip them so that then i can you know sort of say to other people yeah it's really bad here don't step on this one um mm-hmm. and getting married late i would say is 
was one of those things. And I totally get it. Like there are, you don't always, we're not totally autonomous human beings. We don't get to totally decide when that's going to happen or if it's going to happen. But for me, I left it late because for a number of reasons, really, but I think I was afraid of, I don't want to say afraid of commitment. I think I was afraid of making a mistake, really. I think there's a strong perfectionistic streak in me, which meant that I was really afraid of, quote unquote, marrying the wrong person. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I already knew that I was, quote, the wrong person, that there was lots (laughs) of stuff that needed doing there. And so I was just afraid of something that was so irrevocable, you know. Um, And I think that's partly what kept me from from marriage for so long. There were other factors, but I would say that was probably the biggest one. And then before you know it, you're in your mid forties and you're thinking, oh crap, you know, I could be (laughs) alone forever. And I don't think I'm good alone as much as I like my space and as much as all the rest of it, I, I would actually really like to be married. So that forced me, one of the really helpful ones was a line by, is it Stanley Howass where he says, you always marry the wrong person. Um, that was very liberating to hear that. Yeah. And even if you think you're marrying the right person on the day of your wedding, you soon discover it was in fact the wrong person. <laughs> and then and then it's good. That's liberating because you go, yeah, because I'm the wrong person too. And I'm bringing myself yeah. into this marriage. And of course it's going to be, uh, the, the polite phrase I think is a work in progress. <laughs> you know, there's lots of, there's going to be stuff which is really incredibly hard that you never saw coming. And the wrong step, I think, at that point is to is to start thinking, oh, this bad thing is happening or this difficult challenge is happening because I married the wrong person. No, it's not. It's just because marriage is is for first and foremost for your sanctification. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not actually mm-hmm. for your first and foremost for your, you know, selfish gratification so that you feel quote unquote completed or anything like that. Um Thankfully, we do get to be a part of a marriage which will complete us and does complete us, but it's not an earthly one. So coming to terms with that uh, was a was a big a big step for me. And I and I've written a lot. One, funnily enough, the thing I've written in my life that has had the most traction was an article, which was originally a sermon I gave about the God of open options is what I called it, the God of open options. And I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of people do put off marriage until later is because you put it off and you put it off and you put it off because you're trying to keep your options open. There's in this culture, especially where there's this proliferation of choice in every area and online dating, of course, has only exacerbated this. Mm -hmm. Um, There's that sense of, well, I could commit to this person, but what if someone better comes along? And of course, you'd never be so crass as to say that out loud. But I think inwardly, a lot of people are thinking that. And then you think, Mm -hmm. well, what if I get married and then someone else does come along that's better and it's going to make me miserable or I'm going to end up getting divorced or whatever or, you know, committing sexual immorality of one kind or another. So it's better not to get married. I've got to hold off until I meet somebody where I know for a fact there's no possibility that anyone better than this person will ever come along. It's like, well, okay, if you do that, that's a recipe for just never getting married. Right. And and it's also a recipe for if you do get married, being endlessly dissatisfied with the choice that you've made because you're so hyper aware of the the choices that you haven't made, the people that you've turned down maybe, or the people mm-hmm. you've walked away from. And there's that 
for, for people who worship the God of open options, the scariest line in the marriage service um, is that one about forsaking all others. Mm-hmm. You know, whoa, hang on. I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I'm down with that, you know? So yeah. that has been huge. And funnily enough, I had, I got an email from somebody about a year or two after it had gone out and they said, just wanted you to know, read your article and I married my girlfriend. Nice. <laughs> so and he, invi- and he invited me to the wedding. I didn't go in the end, unfortunately I couldn't go, but it was just a, the most wonderful thing. Cause that was, I hope I'm not responsible for a lot of terribly ill-matched yeah. marriages. Cause I think it is possible to be stupid about it and mm-hmm. just be cavalier about it. And I'm not saying that, but I, I, I tend to think that as a culture, maybe even especially as a Christian culture, we tend to fall off the horse on the side of not making the commitment, not making the decision, holding out for quote unquote, something better. And of course it's not just relationships where people do that. It's also in things like churches, people won't commit to churches. They don't really want to become members. They want to sort of turn up once every few weeks maybe go, go to other churches occasionally when they feel like it, um, yeah. go to other churches online again on, on the online technology has made this has exacerbated the problem. Um, but it's an awful, awful tendency because if God kept his, his options open, you know, we'd all be going to hell. Um, but he committed to us and he committed to us in the most costly way imaginable. And it's a wonderful thing that we ought to, we ought to emulate, I think, whilst being wise in our decision-making. It's true. Um, well, I'm enjoying just chatting, but it's almost been 40 minutes and I haven't <laughs> asked any of the questions that I had planned. Right. So maybe uh, we'll switch gears. So you have often talked about your mom in your other podcast, Cooper mm-hmm. and Carrie Have Words. And I don't, it's not quite clear, like the, to me, the timeline of your life and why she why she died and also mm-hmm. why it apparently affected you at such a deep level yeah i think it was largely well for two reasons one is that i was very very close to my mother um but the other thing is that i think probably most of us when we're we we have one death that happens in our life where it's like our first really big encounter with death I mean, when I was younger, you know, my my grandparents died, but I was kind of too young for it to really impact, I think, deeply. So my mother's death in 2001 was when I was, what, 29? Uh, mm. No, yeah, yeah, nearly 29, um, nearly 30. Um, so that was the first encounter with really brushing up against death as a grown-up for me, I think, and losing someone who really helped me make sense of life. I I think you're very, very blessed if you even have one person in your life at any point during your life who you think totally instinctively gets you and is totally for you and is totally sympathetic with you, uh, uh, towards you. And my, I've only had, you know, one or two of those people in my life. And don't get me wrong, I'm not ungrateful about that. That's amazing that I've even had one or two but my mother would have been one of those people. So when I lost her, I felt like I lost just a huge chunk of my, um, I lost somebody who could help me make sense of the world, I think. And it was awful just for so long, not being able to say, Hey mum, what do you think about this? 
do you think, what do you think about this person that I'm dating? Or what do you think about whatever it was? Um, how would you handle this? And my mum was a very humble, she was not like a huge intellectual or anything like that by her own admission. I think she had a lovely lyrical artistic side to her. Um, but she was not somebody who'd be caught reading Herman um, Bavink or anything like that. So that was not her thing. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I loved her so much. So I think the difficulty was C.S. Lewis, when he talks about the, the, the difficulty with bereavement and the awful thing about death, he said something which I'd never really understood before, which I think was huge for me and my mum, which is that when somebody dies that you love, it's not just that you grieve their absence. It's also that you are mourning those parts of yourself that they brought out of you. Mm-hmm. So there are, I mean, you know this, like there is, there would be certain people in your life where like you, you become a certain sort of Abigail when you're mm-hmm. with them and there are other people and they never get that side of you because mm-hmm. that's just not the way their personality is. With my mum, she brought a particular side out of me. And when she died, it's like that whole side of me just died with her. And I think that is what was really so catastrophic. The other thing about it is, um, and there is there are some definite, I'm going to get to the more sort of optimistic, upbeat stuff in a minute. But the other thing about it is they, oh, I've lost my train of thought now. Let's get to the optimistic stuff more quickly. Um, <laughs> she was a believer. And so there was never any, there was never any despair in her death. Mm-hmm. I knew where she was I know where she is now I look forward to being reunited with her so it wasn't the worst kind of grief where it's totally uncomprehending despair and I think it was very hard for my sister for example because she also was very close to my mum but she didn't and doesn't have that assurance so I think it was particularly tough for her dealing with death in that way but yeah I guess it was the reason in answer to your question the reason why it kept keeps coming up is because it happened at such a pivotal time in my life I was just turning 30 and because she brought out a certain Barry which I felt which I feel subsequent to her death has kind of gone forever at least until we're reunited that's probably why it's a big thing yeah I understand so you said that she was really really for you in all sorts of ways can you quantify that a little bit more in mm-hmm. something more specific? Because I think all moms would think, well, I'm obviously for my kids, but some actually can show that a little bit better than others. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And maybe what I mean is that she she seemed to intuitively, un- she seemed intuitively to be able to understand how to express that love and that tenderness in, the, in a way that I could receive it in my in my inmost being and uh like i have a very interesting relationship with my dear dad you know he's a he's a believer as well and you know we're obviously very you know deeply i think fond of each other and connected to each other but it it just doesn't have that i think we we struggle to connect and i think he would say that as well and it doesn't mean we don't love each other but i think it's just we've we've struggled over the years to um to express it in ways that the other could receive it maybe. And that actually reminds me of the thing I was going to say when I lost my train of thought, which is again, Lewis says, um, actually, I don't know whether this is, this is in Lewis. I might claim this for myself anyway. Um, 
if you're a four, if there's four people in your family and then the matriarch dies, suddenly you've discovered that you're actually a three-legged stool, not a four-legged chair. And it's sort of all of you, it's like trying to sit on a chair that's lost a leg. You're mm-hmm. having to redistribute your weight. And everybody's really uncomfortable because you feel like I can't quite put my weight on this and I'm having to counterbalance it in order to, you know. And I think you, you're, you're suddenly your role in the, in the family is completely redefined. You're all forced in a sense. The remaining three, that's my dear daughter has just come back in. You may be able to hear that. Um, the remaining three of you are forced to give a third of your personality to trying to recreate the missing fourth person, if that makes hmm. sense. And again, you feel that, I think, as a profound loss because it's just all of you are just massively out of your comfort zone and you suddenly realise, oh, yeah, she did this for us and we never even realised that she was this for us. Um, And it turns out that none of us can actually, you know, it's irreplaceable. And for a while I just felt like I was just trying to be my mum for for my sister and my dad. And uh, that's another reason to miss somebody because, yeah, you just just can't really do that. Hmm. But, yeah, that's all I meant. Abigail really is that she I think she maybe this is if she if she had done a Myers-Briggs test she'd have that sort of INFJ type thing going on where there's an intuitive sense of ah, oh, I think I understand how you tick um you know you need a big hug at this particular moment so here it is you know she's just mm-hmm. very good at that sort of thing hmm. that's really cool I that's a really interesting description with the stool it makes a lot of sense next biggest question is to do with Calvinism and you and James are heavy in the (laughs) reformed theology. You're not really selling it, Abigail. Uh, No, sorry. (laughs) You guys should be honored that I've put up with all your predestination talk and I'm not in. Good on you. you. Well, I do recall the one episode that you really went into it and I was, I did not like it. I was personally attacked the whole time. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it it happened to be at a time where I was still really trying to figure out like what is Christianity and like oh, wow. me how, like how in the world are we going this is not working. And I was upset because I was like if I'm struggling this much does this mean that I'm not in the predestined group so should I give up? Should mm. I just give up? And so I did not like that. But yeah. like for you how is Calvinism like really served you as your in your worldview and helped you navigate things i mean the first thing i'd want to say is that i'm not a calvinist i'm a biblicist oh which yeah i know that's probably i know that's a bit of a tossy thing to say but i just think i think there is this i I honestly don't walk around thinking oh i'm a calvinist i you know it's just that for me what is typically described as calvinism uh seems to me to um, describe what I see in, in scripture um, seems to have, you know, seems, seems to have nailed it down in lots of ways. I, d- I don't, uh, I'm, I, I can't 
I don't think any particular man-made system is is perfect, but I think to the extent that any system seeks to give an honest account of what scripture is actually saying, then I think that it's worth listening to. Um, I mean, I do think that the so-called five points of Calvinism um, are an accurate reflection of biblical truth. I, I would I would definitely say that for sure. But it's, of course, the issue is not really, well, does this make sense on paper? The question is, does it make sense in the real world? Does the Bible have explanatory power? One of the reasons why I became a Christian was because, you know, it's back in, what, nearly 30 years ago now, was precisely because what I read in Scripture explained my life to me. It's like the woman at the well when she goes, Mm. she's met Jesus and she goes back to her friends and she said, come and see a man who, you know, told me everything I ever did. Um, I've always loved that way of describing an encounter with Jesus because that is exactly the way I felt. It was like, oh, I never understood this about me or about the world. And now here's this man 2,000 years ago. I'm reading his words on a page. And it's an absolutely bang-on explanation of everything I'm experiencing right now in a way that nobody nobody else even comes close to in history. Um, so just to talk about where, where the rubber hits the road, I think with... I mean, people have a big thing about total depravity, for example, you know, the first T in tulip, the sort of distinctives of Calvinism. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't think it's something that you're meant to camp out on. I think it's simply a recognition that actually every part of your being is affected by sin. Um, So the way that my imagination works, the way my mind works, uh, the way my body works or doesn't work, um, everything is touched by, by sin. And again, that for me had huge explanatory power. Why is it that my, I feel I keep hitting a glass ceiling in terms of things like imagination or my intellect? Why is it that even when I think about things incredibly hard, um, I still can't fix them? You mm-hmm. know, why is it in relationships that even with the best will in the world, when I really want somebody to like me and, <laughs> and I'm really trying to serve them, why is it that they don't like me back? Or why is it that the words I want to say come out wrong, you know, Again, total depravity has wonderful explanatory power. Sure. In terms of just saying, yeah, that's all right. It's nothing to be, you know, it's nothing to be sort of surprised by. That's sort of the way you are. Um, it wasn't the way you were originally created, but it is the way that we are. Um, but also, um, there's things like the idea of unconditional election. Again, for me, you know, the idea that actually it's, it's by God's grace from first to last that I'm a believer. For me, that is a that's a wonderful, um, reassuring, um, alleviating, consoling reality. And again, I don't believe it because it's consoling. I do see it clearly in scripture, but I think pastorally it's wonderfully consoling because even just think about one tiny little subset, um, trying to tell other people about Jesus, you know, people you love, you'd love them to know Jesus. Um, if I believe in conditional election, then it's kind of on me whether or not they become a believer. And the pressure of believing that is going to end in one of two places. Either I'm just going to be totally despairing and beating myself up because this really good friend of mine won't believe in Jesus and it's my fault. Um, Or it's going to end up in um, pride where I'm going, yeah, it's all on me. I, yeah, I converted this guy. No, you didn't. (laughs) That's just not biblical reality. I mean, so I think things like that, again, just pastorally 
are really really good for my sanity. Um, I know that Calvinism obviously gets a gets a bad rap from time to time, and I've no doubt that people have um, come across self proclaimed Calvinists who have just seemed very cold or have seemed a bit robotic, maybe lacking in pastoral smarts. But I would argue that's not because they are too Calvinist. I think that's because they're not Calvinist enough. I think they don't under- fully understand these things that, that that Calvinism espouses and that the Bible espouses. So unconditional is, is another thing. I mean, limited atonement to take another aspect that people tend to, to focus in on when they talk about Calvinism. Pastorally, I just think that makes a massive difference. So, you know, limited atonement, the idea that when Christ died, he died specifically for the elect. So he didn't just die sort of nebulously for everybody on earth in the hope that some of them would then appropriate that salvation by putting their faith in him. That actually when he died, he died to effectually save those people that he was dying for. Um, I, I grew up in Methodist churches, uh, which which didn't teach this. Um, it, it was it was a, definitely a very sort of Arminian gospel and that was so that was my meat and drink so i understand that sort of culture and i heard it preached again and again and again and there's again i want to be very clear there are some wonderful godly men and women in the methodist church and some wonderful godly preachers um and all power to them but for me um when when i suddenly read about all right this is what the bible seems to be teaching about why jesus died for whom he died what the effects were of his death that it wasn't just, as it were, shot in the dark in the hope that some people would come to him. It was actually securing in that moment the salvation of numerous people. Um, it's like it's the difference between reading a love letter that that might be intended for you, but you're not really sure because there's no name on it, and reading one that repeatedly refers to you by name. Hmm. You go, oh, he really died for me. Not just, yeah, Christ died for me, died for my sins. No, no, he died for me. When he went to the cross, he had me in mind. Not just me, obviously. That would be a sad lookout for Christians everywhere. But, you know, he had me in mind. And it's very personal. It's very specific. And I think that fits, I think that fits with Scripture. I, I mean, just to take one example, you think about the way that Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, you know. That, um, sorry, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> I can't do that. I'm a Brit. I can't get emotional. Um, you know, just that that sense of being absolutely known and uh, absolutely loved um, personally, not just that I happen to have um, availed myself of a kind of an open offer that was just there for anybody. I do believe that Christ's death is, you know, it is anybody can come to him they just simply have to 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 trust him but in another sense christ knew exactly who would come to him um so he was dying specifically for them and that changes the whole dynamic it changes the way you feel whenever you read about christ's love for you it really does it stops it it brings it out of the realm of the generic and the academic and suddenly makes it extremely personal and I think it it changes you as a result. There's obviously lots more. I, I realise I've I've opened tons of cans of worms there, um, and there's so much more you could say about. I mean, you know, perseverance of the saints would be another one. Again, 
uh, with Calvinism. You know, it's one of the one of the five points of, of Calvinism. That for me is always, I mean, tremendously, tremendously reassuring to know that Christ is the one who reached out and took my hand rather than me trying to reach out and take his hand. And like, as any good parent knows, if I've got my daughter's hand, if I'm, I'm the one who's taken her hand, then I'm going to make very sure she doesn't run out into the road. If on the other hand, she's the one who sort of grabs one of my fingers, she can let go of it anytime she wants, you know, <laughs> yeah. she frequently does. Hmm. So there's that. So there's just a wonderful sense of, no, he's got me. He's, he's got this. That's why he died. I can trust him. Um, even when um, terrible things happen in life, as of course they do. So yeah, just on a pastoral level, this for me is not a heady, cerebral, um, academic issue. It is a profoundly pastoral heart issue. It's a question of how do I just get through the day? And I think those, when you look at those five points, it's not, of course, a summary of all biblical truth. Of course it isn't. But I think there are particular distinctives there which are extremely valuable from a, from a, a pastoral point of view. That all is a very convincing argument. You may have turned me, but <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I'm very confused about, and maybe I'm just making it way too cerebral, is I don't quite understand the point between things are predestined to happen. Is Does yeah. that mean that like our beginning and end is predestined and everything in the middle is up for grabs as far as mm -hmm. free will goes because I still I feel like if my husband says something I have the option it seems apparent that I have the option sure. to snap back or to yeah. not so mm -hmm. I don't quite understand how you deal with personal responsibility in your life when when you're when you have this worldview yeah well I, I think like many things in the Christian life it's not either or it's both and and I realise that for some people that is deeply dissatisfying because it seems like a paradox. I don't think it's a contradiction. I do think it is a paradox. And there is a difference between those two things. Obviously, a, a contradiction is a logical impossibility. But a paradox is where two things that seem to be opposed actually are not. And the only reason we think they're opposed is because of our lack of knowledge. Um, so I think where it comes to that, yes, it's not an illusion. We do have, um, we do make choices. We have real moral agency. We're not puppets. Um, the choices we, we make matter and we're not, as it were, being held at gunpoint. Um, these are, these are real choices that we make at the same time. I want to fully affirm what I think scripture does affirm, which is that not even a sparrow falls without the will of God. Um, that all the hairs on our head are numbered. That, I mean, you see, it seems to me, you see God's providence and predestination played out again and again in scriptures. Think about the story of, of Joseph and his brothers. On one level, it's all about Joseph's brothers. They're, they're making free choices to chuck him in a water system, leave him for dead. You know, they, they didn't, they weren't made to do that. They, they chose to do it. Um, and then, you know, uh, what happens to Joseph happens. He ascends to the highest place in Egypt, ends up face to face with his, his dear brothers. Once again, they mm -hmm. don't realize it first of all, of course. Um, and when they do realize that actually they're talking to their long lost brother, of course they're terrified because they, they're like, he's going to kill us. We tried to kill him. He's going to kill us. Um, but what does he do? He says in Genesis chapter 50, he says, um, he, he tells them not to be alarmed. And he says, what you did, 
you intended for evil. This is not a good start. If you're one of Joseph's brothers, you're like, oh, this is not going to go well. You did intend it for evil. That was a real thing you did, a choice that you made. You weren't puppets. You definitely chose to do it. So you intended for evil, but God intended it for good, even the saving of many lives. So those two things, hand in hand, really intimately, tightly bound, just in the space of one verse. And you see that again and again in scripture, human agency, human choice, it's real, but also God's providence, that nothing happens without God ordering it for his own ends. Of course, the supreme example of that would be the cross. So was was Pilate um, forced to make the decision he made? No. Did the, did the religious leaders, were they somehow over a barrel because of God's sovereignty? Were they forced to do what they did? you know, crying out, crucify him. Not at all. They they chose to do that. They wanted him dead because he was a threat to their power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they did it. But at the same time, Jesus did not go to the cross. Um, it was not outside the Father's will. It was the Father's will that he went to the cross. Yeah, not my will, but yours. There's, there's another huge can of worms. Um, but, it, but he goes to the cross. And at the end of it all, once Jesus has triumphantly and risen from death ascended to be with the father how do the disciples pray about it in the book of acts I think it's acts chapter two where they say these talking about the religious leaders talking about Pilate, um these people conspired to kill your son but they did this is the exact quote from the apostles they did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen so again, it's those two things. You, you just, you can't, I think the thing with it, Abigail, is just, is as so, so much of the Christian life, it's so hard sometimes not to fall off the horse one way or the other. You've got to try and stay in the saddle and the, and the biblical saddle in this, if I'm not stretching the metaphor too far, in this particular case is, yes, you do have choice, but yes, God is sovereign. Yes, you, you're, you're not a puppet. You, you, the choices you make really matter, but at the same time, God's providence will out. There is nothing that happens that God is like, oh, didn't see that coming. Oh, now I've got to scramble around to try and fix the, all the, oh, look at this mess you've made again. Oh, I can't believe you've, oh, you've crucified Jesus. What a mess. I need to try and make, make a good thing come out of this. No, that was always the plan. It's why Jesus came. And so, uh, again, I do understand that from a purely mental point of view, that can sort of tie you up in knots a bit. But I, I don't think it's a logical impossibility. I think it's a paradox, which means it seems at first blush and maybe third blush to be contradictory. But actually, the reason we think it's contradictory is because we're human beings and we have a very limited perspective on things. Our knowledge is limited. We're not God. And uh, if we did have God's perspective, we would go, oh, yeah, oh, OK, that, that's how that works. Here endeth another sermon. I've pre- I've preached a lot. I feel like on your podcast, it's very gracious of you to allow me to do that. Yeah, that's okay. Well, I asked a very preach-oriented question, so <laughs> I kind of asked for it. Um, huh. So, how about I just make it personal instead of dealing with all these hypotheticals? Mm-hmm. I have a sibling who. I mean, we all grew up in the same home and four of us are fine and one is not. Mm. Is it, is it that he's just not predestined or is it possible that 
it is just not his time to come back around yet. Because I don't, it's really hard when it's a person, it's someone that you know and are invested in personally, who's not apparently part of the elect, where this kind of doctrine is hard. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's not my responsibility to save him by any means, but I also would like to know that God hasn't destined him for hell. Quite, quite. Yeah. So when you say that he's he's different from the other siblings, you, you mean purely in terms of his spiritual situation, as it seems? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't think it's our job to decide or try and guess who is predestined and who isn't. That was the mistake of the so-called hyper-Calvinists. Um, I'm happy mm. to say that I, you don't see at least I haven't seen any actual flesh and blood examples of this, but the hyper-Calvinists were those people who said, well, there's no point in preaching the gospel because God's going to save who he's going to save. Nothing we can do about it. Um, you know, so let's not bother. That Again, that's not the biblical view. I mean, you, you look at Paul in Romans where he says, well, how will people believe if people are not sent? How, how will people believe in a Christ they've not heard about? So, th- so there is, there definitely is agency, but I, but just particularly, specifically to address that thing of, well, do we know if he's, is it, is it that he's not predestined? I mean, the the, re- the first thing to say is I, I've got a sister in exactly the same situation. My my only sister, year younger than me, love her dearly. She's going to be visiting us in a couple of months over here, um, from the UK. And spiritually, I'm not sure where where she is. If I, if I'm honest. And does that give me sleepless nights? Yeah, it really does, because I love her dearly. Um, but it's not my job to say, oh, well, maybe she's not predestined, in which case there's no point in me ever talking about Jesus with her. Um, or to say, well, I'm sure, I, I reckon it'll all work out. She is predestined, in, in which case, again, I won't bother talking to her about Jesus. You know, um, my My job is to, the most powerful thing I can do is pray for her and love her well and and seek to serve her and when the opportunities are there and the time's right and um you know when i feel like it's a a time when we can have a a good conversation on these things i'm going to take those opportunities but uh i think it is definitely a bad idea and i don't think calvinism as a system i don't think encourage shouldn't encourage people to speculate on who is saved and who isn't because that's just not the way not the way paul operates not the way you know, Jesus operated, he preached freely to bunches of people on, on hillsides. He wasn't like, yeah, you, you, there's no point in you being here. Go on, off you go. Um, and I, I think it is, I think what we have to do is, tr- is trust in God's sovereignty, trust in his goodness, um, be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. Um, obviously keep praying. I mean, I, I, like, I'm sure it's the same with you. I've prayed for my dear sister for, for years and years and years. Um, and we'll continue to do so. Um, and that and that actually reminds me that, in a sense, we're all of us Calvinists on our knees. Again, that's a bit of a bumper sticker, but what I mean by that is, why would any of us bother praying if we didn't believe in a God who could sovereignly overrule every single situation whenever sure. he wants? I mean, hmm. if God can only... If God can only convert your 
brother and my sister if they kind of give him permission to get involved then we're stuffed i mean we're because who who of us can can affect that change in our brother and our sister um but wonderfully that's not the god we have we have a god who by his free grace um can do what he's, he did for you and do what he did for me which is just even when we're running hard maybe the other direction as i was he can open open your brother's eyes open my sister's eyes and suddenly uh they'll never see things the same way ever again that's all of god's grace and wonderfully he can do that he doesn't need people's permission to do that work um and at the end of the day we just have to trust his his goodness his mercy uh and those things which scripture tell us that he is and and leave it to him i think is the only um it's the only sane thing i think that that we can do as people who 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 love who love people who are, who who don't seem to be walking with the lord yeah again you're very convincing this might be one of those those things, you know, where Jesus said, "If unless you drink of my blood and eat my body, then you have no part in me. And the disciples were like, uh, Jesus, what are you saying? And he's like, yeah, it's really a hard thing to take in, but you just need to do it or not. You can leave if you right. want. Right. And maybe it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this is a hard thing, yeah. but you need to accept it. Yeah, I, and again... It's very, it's very important, isn't it, for all of us to be, <clears throat> not just to take things on on trust. It's very hard because I'd be lying if I said I wasn't influenced, obviously, by a number of great teachers in my life. But at the end of the day, you we have to look at scripture ourselves and, sure. and say, all right, is that actually what's being taught here, um, or is this skewed in some way? And yeah. it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard to take off the the cultural blinkers because you and I, whether we like it or not, are reading the Bible as, you know, 20 people living in 2021 as Westerners. Like we, we have all of this, all these presuppositions and most of them, we have no idea they're there and yet they're coloring the way that we see things. So it's, it is, it's, it is a challenge, but again, wonderfully, I think we can, we can pray that God would, would help us to be wise, would help us to see despite all of that kind of baggage. Sure. Yeah. I was thinking, that it is super possible that I'm just such a deeply ingrained American that wants freedom, (laughs) that the idea of not having much of a choice in something is just too repugnant to really accept. Yeah. Yeah. And again, yeah, I just think it's important to say, yeah, you definitely do. You do have a choice. I think, I think the way that people usually talk about free will is obviously a very loaded phrase because there are all sorts of theories about, all right, exactly what sort of free will are you talking about? You know, is this kind of hard, um, hard free will, soft free will? What are we talking about? Um, and yes, I think there's a, a particular thing that comes into the, the Western mind when we talk about free will. I think the Bible does talk about free will differently i mean martin luther of course famously wrote a book called the bondage of the will and the question is well how free are we actually if we've got a will that can only choose sin you know how is that freedom i mean in a sense it is but in another sense it's not it's slavery and i think that is the way that scripture talks about those uh you know those of us who are uh who don't yet know the lord that actually we we are a lot less free than we we think we are. And I think the the proof of that is when you try to get the chains off. You know, mm-hmm. if you say to somebody, for example, <laughs> all right, you, you struggle with alcohol or you struggle with looking at pornography or whatever it is, 
all right, just stop. Just stop doing it. And most of the time people go, yeah, I tried, but I keep kind of finding myself back in that place. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. What you, in that sense, you're not far from the kingdom because you understand that you're in slavery, you're in chains, just as real as, you know, the ones that plague the Israelites in Egypt and you need a savior. You need somebody who can, who can, can lead you out of that slavery towards the promised land. That's the, that is another way, another very compelling way, I think, of looking at, at the gospel. It's, it's, it's about liberation. It's about freedom from slavery. And actually, sorry, I, I'm aware that I'm talking in, <clears throat> I'm talking too much in abstracts, which is one of my um, pitfalls, I'm afraid. But it, there is a, I can think of a very real example of this. When I was, when I first became a Christian, um, I was, I don't share this with everybody, but uh, now I'm sharing it with all of your listeners as well. So there we go. That's fairly sort of indiscriminate, isn't it? Um, so I'm, I'm, listeners, let me encourage you to, to use this uh, information with discretion. But when I became a Christian when I was 20, I had a lot of relationships on the go. I wasn't, I wasn't two-timing. I was actually three-timing. And none of the, the women that I was involved with, and I don't say that, by the way, to sort of go, oh, cool, good job, Barry. What a, what a player, you know. I say that with with total shame, and that's why I don't usually sure. usually talk about it. But um, none of the women knew the others. But I tried again and again. This will sound pathetic, but again and again, I tried to end just even just one of those relationships and try and tidy up my life a little bit, which had become an absolute car crash, as you can imagine. Um, and I couldn't do it. I just found I couldn't do it. I kept getting back in touch with them at vulnerable moments. I'd say, you know, I, I just can't live without that support in my life. And then within the space of a week, Christ got hold of me. And the first thing I did was sit down with all of them face to face and end the relationships. And I never looked back. There was just an immediate sense of, wow, I really was enslaved before. I, I really didn't. I thought I was free. I mean, that's what you, it's the ultimate in freedom, right? I can just have all these girlfriends. Wow, yay! It's just total living the dream, right? But I was a slave, and I and I realised I was a slave when I tried to get the chains off. And then when I when when Christ came for me, I I suddenly had the desire and the ability to be able to deal with those relationships in a healthy way. That was not down to me gritting my teeth and going right this time it's going to happen. It was just that my heart was changed, and I I was free. I was now free to actually make the choices that I wanted to make. Sorry, that was probably oversharing, wasn't it? It's a bit of oversharing. Maybe going on there. you Feel might have tipped over the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, My wife man. knows about this, so it's all right. I think it's, I think it's okay. It's all right. yeah. It was 20, over 20 years ago, so you're probably good anyway. Yeah, it was 30, 30 years ago now. Oh, my. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, as I'm looking at my list of questions i have zero of the boxes ticked off (laughs) (laughs) um do you have a couple more minutes sure yeah yeah um do you want to talk about the ligonier ministries in the podcast that you do simply put i think it's a great podcast oh that's kind of you yeah yeah so uh, i started working for ligonier uh two years ago now and i as part of working for them, basically I helped to oversee the the podcasts that they produce. And as part of that, I, I present two different podcasts. One is called Luther in Real Time, uh, which is kind of an audio drama. 
um, actually, and, and it's really exciting because the episodes are released exactly 500 years to the day after the events being described. Um, and then I do another one called Simply Put, which is the, the elevator pitch for that is basically a short podcast about long words. And the idea is to take things which might seem a bit complicated and intimidating, like, I don't know, imputed righteousness or superlapsarianism or something <laughs> daft like that. And then in the space of five or six minutes, just try and try and explain it as clearly as I can and hopefully use illustrations which help to really ground it and stop it from just being this kind of academic exercise. And one of the reasons I've loved doing that is because, like Augustine, I, I did not, this is probably our only similarity, that and the um, profligacy with women, but um, the, he said that I don't know what I think about anything um, until I've written about it. And mm. that is one of been one of the great blessings for me in writing, simply put, is that in writing these things out, I get clear on a lot of things that I would not have been clear on otherwise. So one of the, it's just been such a great gift to me to, to be able to do that. And sure. so, yeah, we've done a hundred and I think today as we're recording, it's Tuesday and the 105th episode, I think just came out today. So we've been going for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, no, it's, I'd recommend it. You know, obviously I would, I'm biased, but then it's only cost you five minutes if you listen to it and think, oh, that was rubbish. It's only five minutes of your life you've wasted. So there's that going for it. Sure. I recall the episode, I think it's the eternity of God huh. that I listened to a few times in a row because I was just like, my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me I both. cannot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you have autonomy in choosing the subjects or uh, what's yeah, your that's, role? It's, funnily enough, it's both and. Um, I, <laughs> so I do choose a lot of the subjects and I put them on a spreadsheet, but then it gets run through um, Ligonier Editorial and they will say, yeah, that sounds fine or nope, don't touch that one. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's great. It's a good mixture. But I do think we, I do think we've, we've, we've touched on some things which are really yeah, really sort of complex, but hopefully we've done it in a way which helps it sing a little bit. Sure. Well, and you did a good podcast move because you picked subject matter that could never run out of content. There's just endless right. theology, endless doctrine that mm -hmm. you can talk about. It's, it's true. Time. And I've started soliciting suggestions from listeners as well. So people will send me emails and say, oh, you should talk about this. So yeah, you're right. It's never... It's never ending. People keep wanting me to talk about baptism, though, which is really uncomfortable because I'm a credo Baptist working at a, a pedo Baptist organization. So I have to tread quite carefully in that one. It's quite, so I, I get people regularly suggesting that, but I think they're just trying to get me into trouble, really. I think they're just Maybe. Trying. It's quite funny. So um, you do, just use two words that I don't know what they mean. Credo oh, yeah. baptism? Yeah, so credo baptism being uh, we uh, people who believe that you should only baptize... Um, well, basically, Creed of Baptist and Peter Baptist both believe that you should only baptize believers, but Peter Baptist would say that it's it's good and desirable to baptize babies um, okay. <clears throat> because they are part of the covenant community. Whereas Creed of Baptists, like myself, would say that a, that baptism should only be applied to those who um, where where it's where it, we know that it's a visible representation of an invisible reality how do we know that it's an invisible reality well because they've given some sort of assent to they've said i'm i'm a believer i'm in you know i, I want to be a, i'm a christian and of course babies can't do that so i would argue that baptism isn't appropriately applied to to infants but 
as they say, some of my best friends are Peter Baptists. In fact, sure. my three best friends in the UK believe in baptizing babies because they're Anglicans. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, it's not for lack of trying. People have tried to convert me, but unfortunately I've, I was converted the other way. I grew up going to Anglican, well, I got converted to an Anglican church and then spent many years, like 20 years in Anglican churches. But one of the reasons I came out of the Anglican church, apart from the whole issue of sort of polity and how it's organised and how church discipline's done, but was because of this issue of baptism. I just became convinced as I read scripture that as far as I could see in the New Testament, I didn't see any evidence of, of babies being baptised and the arguments from silence, which Peter Baptist tend to advance, I didn't find convincing. So I became a a creed a Baptist, and that took me out of the Anglican Church. So there that is. I've thrown a lot of big words around. I realise that. I do apologise. When it comes to the technical aspect of your, simply put, how many how many takes do you have to do when you're sitting down to record it? It depends how tired I am, honestly. You've probably seen this in your own work. Yeah. You know, if I'm tired, I'm just constantly tripping up over stuff and then it makes it really hard to deal with it in the edit. My my ideal thing is I go in, I'm very well rested, my voice is sounding nice, and uh, which means no coffee in the morning, I've found. Um, and then I just do it in one take and then there's no editing necessary. In practice, nearly always, there's quite a bit of editing that needs to happen. And I notice... Like, like all of us who work in front of a microphone, when you start listening on a good pair of headphones with the volume turned up, you notice all sorts of weird stuff that your voice does, which you're not even aware it does. Weird clicky sounds you make between words and breaths that you take that are really distracting and you start getting a bit neurotic about it. And mm -hmm. when I first started getting used to using Logic Pro and editing, I was just editing out every little weird sound. Um, but then you think that way madness lies. So, and also I think it sounds a bit weird if you cut out all the breaths from a podcast. Yeah. As a listener, you, it, it's really uncomfortable listening, isn't it? Because it, it makes you hold your breath a bit mm -hmm. and you lose the sort of audible punctuation that I think is important. So yes. um, I, I now hopefully strike a happy medium. I take out the really annoying breaths and noises, but leave in some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll show my husband like, hey, how did this intro go? Do I need to reword it? And he'll oh. say, well, I think it's good, but you sound really frustrated because you've tried it 20 times. <laughs> I'm like, oh, darn it. <laughs> that is exactly yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing how transparent our vocal cords are, isn't it? Yeah. They're so expressive. And uh, even just if we have the wrong thought at the wrong time, it, mm -hmm. it, get, it comes through in those vibrations. It's really the most extraordinary creation. How do you say what you're reading without it sounding like you're reading? Yeah, so this is one of these things where God in his providence uh, had me trained as an actor back in the day. So I was a, mm. uh, straight after university, I trained as an actor for a year in London and then was a professional actor for seven years, co-ran a theatre company as well. And it makes you very sensitive to those sorts of things. So I... I'm constantly monitoring the way that I, I'm sounding. I mean, hopefully I do it less consciously now because it's, it's a bit painful when it's very self-conscious. But I, I know when I sound convincing or not. I know when it sounds like I'm reading stuff. And I'm just trying to avoid that. And so I'll just hopefully retake it. There are other times where I, I'm just too, again, I'm too tired usually. And I either don't notice it or I'm too tired to fix it and um, mm -hmm. and it doesn't get changed. But yes, I think I'm, I've got antenna, which means that I, I pick up on that stuff maybe a bit better than some other people. 
I was hoping your answer wasn't going to be go to acting school. <laughs> go to drama school. <laughs> yeah. I do I do uh. think if you're particularly if you're a preacher or you're a Christian who works in the sort of line of work that we do, it is really helped two things. One is a little bit of acting training, like learn how to use the breath and all that stuff. But also um English literature is a big one. That was my that was the hmm. three years I spent doing that at university. Um I, it, it's obvious to me that a lot of preachers have never read a novel. Do you know <laughs> so what I mean? True. Yeah. And I think that really, it's interesting because the Puritans, of course, would have been very down on something like like theatre or novels if novels had really existed when Puritans were in their heyday. But I, but I, and I can understand that, you know, there's always that fear of being, you know, quote unquote, corrupted by, by worldly thoughts and so on. But what, what a good novel will help a preacher do or a communicator do is understand well lots of things one is just you don't have to use that word or that cliche pick pick another one pick a word that people haven't heard before that will really make them sit sit up and, and make them concentrate learn the power of stories we ought to already have that because we've got the gospels and jesus spends so much time telling stories but I don't think, I think a lot of preachers, particularly British conservative evangelicals, which is the sort of stable that I come from um, and still would count myself a part of, a lot of the preaching is very, very good at propositional truth. Propositional truth, extremely important, but very, very bad at actually making those truths sing. Very bad mm -hmm. at telling stories which help to illuminate those truths and bring them home to the human heart. We think it's enough just to say, say some true things and then we can sit down and it, we will have done our job. But actually, that's not our job. Our job is to give the truth legs and um, allow it to take root in people's heart. And part of that is, you know, being able to tell stories, use metaphors and similes and imagery and so on. I think that's super important. And English literature will really obviously help with that. Do you have any recommendations for pastors that have some podcasts out that I could listen to. I need more Bible, Ooh. less Joe Rogan. And <laughs> <laughs> you need like pastors who are not quite so good at mixed martial arts. Yeah. So yeah, I need somebody to listen to. I listen to Brant yeah. every day and I, there's another wonderful podcast called the 10 minute Bible hour podcast. That's really good. I listen to that from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's only, by the time I've listened to that, it's about 25 minutes of Bible, and then I head straight into a three-hour and 30-minute Joe Rogan. Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I'm just looking at the stuff I've listened to recently because I do tend to cycle stuff quite a lot. I think the reality is that a lot of the stuff I... I tell you who I really like, and this might be particularly good for you as you're painting houses and you've got lots of time. The work of Alistair Roberts is extremely nuanced and careful and theologically deep. Um, so he really takes his time on stuff. Um, with the best will in the world, I don't think Alistair Roberts would want to do simply put and restrict himself to five or six minutes. His podcasts tend to last for, you know, in a matter of hours. Not always. There's, there are some which are much shorter, but I would encourage you to, you know, check him out. Okay. Um, because if you can really listen to what he's saying, he's very... He's very insightful, extremely theologically queued up, clued up. He's definitely coming from a more academic place. So there's lots of stuff he says where I'm like, what? I, you know, I need to Google that. But um, there's no, you know, and, and again, that's quite a good thing, isn't it? It's like if you go to the gym and don't don't expect to sweat, 
you've got to sweat from time to time if you want to build muscles and he's yeah. a, he's a good guy for that i would say um i do still listen to the mortification of spin from time to time that's carl truman um todd pruitt who else is good this is one for more of your male listeners but the masculinist is very interesting you might i think you might find it interesting anyway that's being done by married Michael. to a man you know yeah aaron wren he's coming from more of a sort of a sociologist uh well, I don't know if that's true, but more of a social perspective on things. But he's a really interesting commentator on what's going in on going on in the church and what's going on around the church and in the culture. Um, awesome. My colleague, Dr. Steve Nichols, does a great five uh, podcast called Five Minutes in Church History. Again, if if you if you oh time, yeah, I've time listened time. to that one. Yeah. So that's quite a nice way into you know, big moments in church history. And it's a great, it can be a great launching point. Oh, that sounds like a fascinating story. I'd love to read more about that. Just Thinking is good. Uh, The BAR podcast is great. A couple of African-American brothers talking about culture and theology. Um, Friends of mine, and um, they do terrific work. I Honestly, Abby, guys, I'm looking down this list. So much of the stuff is not Christian. I feel slightly ashamed to admit that. Because my, my, if you were looking at this as a podcast, you'd, you'd be able to totally get me, which is that I'm a bit obsessed with Disney theme parks. I really love music and songwriting. Uh, and I kind of love history, love films, love comedy. But I'm aware that a lot of you, that won't be the case for many of your listeners. So I don't want to get too geeky and nerdy about stuff. I might, we should probably wrap up. Mm-hmm. It's been a while. Um, <laughs> and you have a life and I have a life. So I'll do my final four questions that I ask everybody. Right. So you can answer as long as you would like. All right. I'll try um, and be quick. Okay. Uh, do you like The Office or Parks and Rec better? I can honestly say I've never really seen Parks and Rec. Um, I think I may have watched one episode by accident at once. I know people love its bits. I love... I do like like The Office a lot. And I think one of your follow-up questions is, do I prefer the British office or the American office? I like both, but I would have to say I'd have to go for the British office ultimately. Sure, sure. Um, can you talk in an, in an American accent? <laughs> is that one of your questions? No, just for you. <laughs> you just thrown that one in there. Uh, I I can. It's not very good. My wife will tell you. It's she's like, yeah, don't do that ever again. <laughs> I, and it is. It's not. I really feel it ought to be better, given how much time I've spent in the states. But it's not very good. Yeah. On in my defense, the average American's English accent is also terrible. So there's that. It's so true, so true. I won't even try. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? Every day people do. Because they hear my voice and what they think I want in that moment is for them to an attempt to attempt an English accent. This usually happens to me when I get to the till at Panera Bread or something like that. Yeah. And, and oh, I have to goodness. kind of smile gamely and go, oh, yeah. Sounds a bit like Dick Van Dyke, but all right, worth a go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That sounds terrible. <laughs> um, so Genesis 1 through 11, the mm-hmm. pre-Abrahamic stories. Right. Is that history or legend slash myth? I mean, does it use poetic poetic language at times? Yes. Is it literal history? Yes. Yeah, would be my answer okay. to that. Okay. I mean, I realize there's a lot of debate about what a day means, for example, in Genesis 1, mm-hmm. the first few verses. 
Um, I've got views on that. I, I don't, I think, I think it is literal history. The reason I think it is literal history, what, what I mean by that is there was a literal Adam and there was a literal Eve. Um, if there was not a literal Adam, you've got a massive problem with the Bible as a whole because Jesus is the, the final Adam. He's the one who lives the life that Adam should have lived and, mm-hmm. and in doing so saves us. So if Adam is not literal, you're basically unpicking the whole thing right at the foundation. Yeah. Is it literal in that Satan literally comes at a snake as a snake and is maybe like hopping on his tail and comes and talks to Eve? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because the curse about him slithering on his, his belly and, you know, eating yeah. dust all the days of his life. I don't know is the answer to that. Um, I think that Satan as a non-corporeal being, as angels are, and we know that angels obviously take a form from time to time that human beings can see and interact with. I assume that was what was happening there. Did you just say non-corporeal? Yeah, I probably said it wrong, but non-corporeal, I probably would say. I I don't know if you said it wrong or not. I just have never heard it. Yeah, like without a body. Okay. So like there's spirit, there's, you know, angels. Of course, Satan is, a, is an angel or was an angel. Um, uh, well, is an angel, but is now an angel of darkness rather than an angel of light. Uh, are non they're non-physical beings okay makes sense um do you think that there are aliens uh i think there is a good possibility that we have interacted with things beyond our understanding and i think that ties closely to your previous question yeah my my suspicion is that the very that the experiences that many people seem to have had uh interactions abductions sightings um, strange meetings, strange fire in the sky. I think, th- I think that I, I've, from a Christian worldview, I have no problem saying, yeah, that could well be um, interactions with the spirit, uh, the spiritual world. Uh, we know there is a spiritual uh, dimension as Christians. We didn't ought to be afraid of that. I think that that's probably what happens when spiritual realities come into contact with a culture which has no category for understanding them, and mm-hmm. therefore has to explain them in terms of and I've identified flying objects or aliens. That's my best guess, but I don't know. It may be the whole thing. It may be that everybody who talks about them is totally making stuff up. That is also possible. <laughs> I've never seen one myself, if that's what you're trying to get oh. at. Not, well, not yeah, that knowledge. is the subtext of my question. <laughs> I'm trying to work out from one of those guys. Yeah. yeah. My husband has an uncle who works in the military as an engineer, and the last time I saw him, I was like, okay, I got to know where – are you hiding the aliens right. in the ships? Right. So he told me a really long story about, you know, going down this deep, dark stairway into the basement of this government building. And then he just had to go in and like swear an oath. And I, Whoa. it was so annoying. He led me down this deep, dark tunnel of a journey. And then it was just that he was given a couple other completely unrelated government secrets that he had to sign an oath about. <laughs> I was so annoyed. He had me so sucked in. There's and a man who knows the power of story. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so who or what inspires you to be your best self? Oh, well, I can't say Jesus, presumably, can I? Is that not no. allowed? Yeah, okay. No. Um, well, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat then and say the most Christ-like people I know, I think. I mean, you, you know, when you bump into somebody and you know, they're a Christian and they just got something about them. And there've just been times like that where I go, yeah, I'd really like to be like that, more like that. 
to be whether it is like more just you know calmer more peaceful more joyful is a big one for me because i think i naturally tend towards a rather sort of eeyore-ish um you know negativity and cynicism Mm -hmm. it's partly why i love living in the states because i'm surrounded by people who are mostly very can-do people i think that's very good for me um yeah i think that's it i think the most christ-like people and you go wow that's amazing that's very unlike the vast majority of people you meet i'd love to be more more like that yeah well that kind of wraps everything up but I should mention your other podcast, Hoop, Cooper and Carrie Have, have words. words. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a great podcast. I really like how I'm surprised every episode. I'll see the topic come through on my Patreon that there's <laughs> this thing coming and I'll think, okay, I feel like I have a decent handle on this subject. And then you guys start talking and I think, oh, so I knew nothing about the thing. So... <laughs> 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 yeah, I really enjoyed. We're creating I just insecurities listened. as we go. Is that the, <laughs> definitely, the definitely? Yeah. It's a good selling point. Yeah, no, I, I just listened good. to the one yesterday about Utopia. Mm. Very good, very good. I don't know if that's released to the public yet. But, um, yeah, that is going to be our next episode, which I think is coming out not this Thursday, but the Thursday after. So maybe how? What's the lead time on this podcast? This one is just coming out this Thursday because I have no one else lined up. So there you go. So basically that means, yeah, this will come out Thursday and then the Thursday after will be the episode on Utopias. Yeah. I, You know, honestly, Abigail, I love doing it just because it means I get to spend time with a good friend of mine. Sure. Who who I otherwise would not have had time with. And the weird thing is we spent much less time with each other when we were actually living in the same country together. And now we are 4,000 miles apart. We spend, you know, every, every two weeks and sometimes, you know, more frequently than that. We're just spending hours chatting away to stuff on stuff. So it's been great. It's been really, really, really joyful. Yeah. I think it's great that you have that friendship. It just makes me chuckle because, you know, people can't maintain a friendship that's 10 minutes away. But (laughs) here you guys across the ocean doing a great job of it. Yeah. Well, maybe that's, it's sort of cheating, isn't it? Because it's not really, you know, this is why virtual, this is a whole other can of worms don't worry i'm not going to open but that's why virtual church i think is a sort of an oxymoron isn't it it's like you can't be how can you be thousands of miles apart and really have a relationship with people um so anyway but yes i like to think he's still a good friend and hopefully this year's my 50th birthday so i'm sort of got some plans to sorry there's a very loud bird um which you might be able to hear just there's a bit of wildlife going on here this is florida um yeah yeah so my 50th birthday in november hoping to get back to the uk and it'd be lovely to actually see James face to face for the first time in whatever it's been, five years or so. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm yeah. I'm I'm really I think you're a you're a really wonderful interviewer. I've not really been interviewed much, but you you have a real gift for for listening to people and asking smart um questions that that make people say things they probably shouldn't have said so good on you it's very good (laughs) awesome thank you well i suppose that about wraps it up if you liked this episode please consider sharing and if you're interested in contacting me personally i'll leave my instagram email and patreon in the show notes talk to you guys next week